Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches, teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her in his, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for, those, for you to lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God. For by the earth, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head. For you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. 
But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to shine on the evil and the good. His sins reign on the righteous, and sins reign on the righteous and on the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You may be seated. Good morning, church. Live back there? Yes, thank you very much. Please join me in a word of prayer as we uh, prepare to worship the Lord through, the, uh, through his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, through your spirit this morning, help us to understand your word. Father, help us to clearly see Christ, who is the word. Show us the condition of our hearts that we might be transformed into Christ's image. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case see the kingdom of heaven. That's where we left off previously in Matthew um, with the preaching of the word last week. And I wonder, did you stop and think about this statement and how it affected the people who heard it? It's a very provocative statement. It's a very challenging statement. Again, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall no way see the kingdom of heaven. Think about this. Here's Jesus, the son of a carpenter, from this little hick backwater town called Nazareth. Essentially, uneducated and untrained, at least in the standards of the culture at his time, to be speaking about the word of God. Yet here he speaks with authority to a crowd of Jews, telling them that their righteousness, their personal righteousness, needs to exceed that of the religious leaders of the time. Who are these scribes and Pharisees? They were the keepers of the law. They were the ones that laid out what righteousness looked like in that society. They needed to be more righteous than those men that set the rules and the standards for keeping the Jewish law. How do you think that struck them? What do you think was going through their mind? I mean, we have the advantage of the whole council of scripture, right? So as we look at that statement, in some ways we can give assent to it, right? And we can begin to connect with it. But think about them, right? All they knew were these religious leaders as their teachers and the ones that set what was righteousness. And now Christ steps up and says, you need to be more righteous than they are. Do you think they thought it was impossible? Do you think they might have been discouraged at initially hearing these words? Better yet, what about us? What do we think? 
what would we have thought if we heard those words in that crowd? Or what are you thinking this morning, right, as we come to the word with that statement before us? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. With this statement, Christ begins his teaching of a very central truth of the gospel. That being in Christ is the only way to true righteousness. This is early in his ministry, and he's bringing that message forward very quickly. And as Ralph talked some last week, at this point, they don't completely understand it, nor does he expect them to. Right? This is something he's going to continue to teach through his three years of public ministry. That he is the way, the truth, and the life and the only way to righteousness. So this is the first steps, almost, of that teaching being brought forward to these people. But in him, through the indwelling spirit, we as believers have a righteousness that can exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And yes, we will enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's how we can reflect on that verse. As believers in Christ, we can look at that verse and know that through him, And through his righteousness, our righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And we will see the kingdom of heaven. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be going through chapter 5, verses 21 through 47. And they sit as a teaching. Christ actually is going to walk through six examples here of how through him and by the Spirit, we keep the spirit of the law. So that's the teaching he's going to lay out. We're moving into a very practical session actually, for the next several weeks here. And we're going to look at six areas. This week, he's going to take the first area, that of murder, or as Christ would say, anger, towards another person. Very central teaching. We're going to look at these verses in three sections today. Verses 21 through 22 will give us Christ's challenge to have a hard obedience. So verses 21 through 22, Christ's challenge to have a hard obedience. Then he takes that challenge and shows it walked out with two examples. In verse 25 through 26, he talks about the the priority we should have for reconciliation with a wrong brother. The priority we should have towards reconciliation with a wrong brother. The second example that we walked through this morning is in verse 25 through 26. And it speaks of the need for a speedy resolution of a conflict so they don't grow out of control. Speedy resolution of conflicts before they grow out of control. And so these six verses taken as a sum, what we're going to see this morning is Christ teaches God's priority of a hard attitude for righteousness in humans' relationships. Christ teaches this morning, through the word, God's priority of a hard attitude of righteousness in human relationships. So with that, let's look at verse 21 and 22. You've heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you, that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. So verse 21 begins, I think uh, the version Rob read, it was said by the ancients, also says here, you've heard that it was said by them of old time. What Christ is referring to here is the Pharisees' teaching. They were pulling their teaching from the ancients, from Moses, from the law. 
And that teaching has been pulled forward. It's been codified. It's been written. It's been analyzed. It's been parsed. It's been placed in books in the society that they live in. And the crux of that teaching then would be the people's practice. So what he's referring to in verse 21 is what the people have been taught and what they're aspiring to, right? What they've been led, what they've been taught to try to do. And what is that? Essentially, the physical outward act of murder is being prohibited. Verse 21 is speaking to an action, uh, a visible something external. The actual physical act of murder is being prohibited. So really where the society sits at this time and where a devout Jew who might be hearing Jesus talk would be sitting, that if they did not physically commit murder, they were righteous. They could check the box, right? Okay, that's one area where I'm righteous. I haven't killed anybody, would be that. Well, Christ is going to proceed, though, to tear down this false trust of only an outward observance for righteousness. Verse 22, but I say unto you, right? But I say unto you, And we're going to hear that phrase five more times as we go through the six examples that Christ gives us here. Because that's what we're going to walk through now is this is what you've been taught. This is what you think. But I say unto you, right, there's a new way of thinking and approaching because I've come, right? There's a gospel here. There's a good word to be spoken. There's a sacrifice coming. But I say unto you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of the hellfire. Christ is going to teach them how to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The very challenge that he gave them in verse 20, he's going to equip them to do. And we can count on God to do that. When he calls us to do something, he fully equips us to do it. He doesn't leave us wondering how or unable to do what pleases him. He gives us his word. He gives us his spirit. He's not a difficult God. He's a reasonable God. So where is the emphasis? How are they going to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? They have to have an inner righteousness. right? He's telling them, do not have an inner attitude of anger towards another person. Why? Why anger? How does that relate to what he was just speaking about in verse 21 about murder? Let's turn to Genesis 4, verses 1 through 8. Please turn there. I think it helps as we look at some cross-references from the Word to keep us engaged and see the whole counsel of God. So Genesis 4, 1 through 8. I think this gives us an insight to why he's talking about anger in relation to murder. We have the account of Cain and Abel in Genesis 4, chapter 1 through 8. I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought the fruit of the ground for an offering unto the Lord. In Abel, he also brought of the firstlings of his flock of the fat thereof. The Lord had respect unto Abel and his offering. But unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth. He was angry. He was upset. And his countenance fell. The Lord said unto Cain, the Lord's not going to let this go unnoticed. He sees the problem, right? So he gives him an opportunity to repent. 
the Lord said unto Cain, why are you wroth? What are you angry about? Why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, you'll be accepted. But if you do not well, sin lies at the door. And unto thee shall be its desire, and you shall rule over him. So there's a challenge on the table for Cain right now. He's angry. God's realized it. God's called him out on it and asked him to repent of it and do right. In verse 8, we see Cain's choice. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. He didn't handle his anger. He was still wroth. And anger took the step to murder. You see why God's very concerned about a hard attitude of anger towards another person? There's a progression that occurs with this anger, and we can see it right here in verse 22. Back to Matthew 5.22. Look at the three things that occur here. Whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now there's an important phrase to understand there, without a cause. I want to pause on that for a second. Uh, it's called a qualifier in the English language, right? It adds maybe a, a qualifying or a clarifying statement. Uh, the first thing I'd like to say about that phrase is if you notice when Rob read, it was not in the version that he read from. The King James Version is the only version that we find that phrase in. And so many scholars over time have actually determined that that might not be the most accurate rending to put that without a cause in there. Um, that aside, when we look at without a cause, there's only one cause for anger that we truly, as believers, should have. And that's an anger at sin and its source. That does not include anger towards another human being that God created. Our anger should be at sin and its source, not against a person. So that qualifier does not give us license and some wiggle room to be angry with a brother. So the first type, though, it says anger. And the word there translates to jealousy or envy. Sound familiar? Where did Cain start from? Right, Abel's sacrifice was accepted. His wasn't. Kind of jealous of his brother. Kind of upset that he didn't get the honor that his brother got, maybe. Same source of anger. So that first anger it speaks of is, is that initial inkling of anger, where we look at another with some kind of concern usually about ourselves. Then it moves on. There's a progression of the anger. The next, whoever shall say unto his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. There's a greater punishment as we walk around here, so what's, what's it's implying is there's a greater progression into the sin that's occurring as we walk through verse 22. So this second anger, where one would say Raka, right? Something would come out of your mouth. So it's not, not just an anger that sits in your heart, right? It's, it's coming out the mouth. As a man thinks in his heart, so he speaks. Right? So now this anger is growing, and it's to the point where it will come out of our mouth. And in this case, it's a contemptuous. Okay, Rocco was kind of a contempt. Right? I'm, I'm better than you. you know, it's kind of like a, a mild put-down right? in modern vernacular. Right? It was a slam. Right? Uh, it would be something we might say. But it's to look down on another, really, to soothe our wounded pride. Right? Our pride started the whole thing back with our initial anger at our brother, and now we're looking to soothe it, right? We're looking for an outlet of that, that burden that we're carrying of that pride. And if it's not taken care of, there's a third step of progression. 
Whoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Now you look at that and say fool? Well, that's not maybe the strongest word I've ever heard in terms of, of a negative, of a derogatory term. But this particular rendering of the word fool is an anger that's abusive. All right? This is an abusive type anger where you're, you really want ill for that person. You want something bad to happen to them when you call them a fool in this manner, shape, or form. It's a severe progression. But doesn't it bring you then right up to, or could bring someone right up to the actual action of bringing harm to that person? So we see here the train that links an initial inkling of anger against somebody to the progression that the sin could take. And isn't that how sin is? Doesn't it have a progression? We usually don't start full-blown, right? All the way to the point of murder. But doesn't sin initially come small so we don't maybe recognize it or maybe we don't think we really need to deal with it right now? Isn't our enemy and our flesh pretty wily? (laughs) It's not going to hit us right in the face, usually. It's going to start small. And then it's going to grow through progressive steps until it's large. If we keep it confessed and unrepented. Psalm 1, very familiar to all of us, right? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. That psalm walks us through the same kind of progression. Right? Initially, we're standing, right? We're maybe kind of on the outside of the group, right? And maybe they're, you know, something's going on there. They're, they're talking bad about somebody. We, we just kind of stand on the edge. We're, we're kind of an observer. We really aren't all in. But, you know, eventually we're, we're kind of drawn into the circle a little bit further. Conversation goes on a little bit. We stay a little longer and thought, no, I'm just going to sit here. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay here for a while. And then before you know it, you're sitting in the seat with a scornful. We see this progression over and over in the word. And that's why Christ speaks so firmly in these next about stopping these things in the heart. Right? That the righteousness comes from the heart. Because if we can cut them off when they're small, when they first enter our heart, and the Holy Spirit convicts us of them, they don't propagate. They don't grow. They don't take on these magnitudes that we see as a repeating pattern in Scripture. And as we said, the heart filled with anger eventually comes out in speech. In Luke 6.45, Christ speaks of this. He says, A good man out of the treasure of his heart bringeth forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So let's put this heart obedience into action. Let's bring it right down to where we live. Children, I'm going to talk to you first. When you're out playing or working with your brothers or sisters or some friends, you know, occasionally things don't go the way you want them to. Right? Somebody doesn't play the way you want them to. They don't want to play the game you want to. They play the game a different way. Or maybe they don't quite do their share of their work, in your opinion. Right? 
You guys can all relate to that. That happens in your lives sometimes. What do you do? Maybe you get a little bit angry. Maybe you get just a little bit upset at that person, at that family member, at that friend. What comes out your mouth? Do you sometimes say something that's not so nice? Or call them a name you really wouldn't want to be called or have sent your way? Guys, that's a sin. You can't get angry like that and have it come out your mouth. When you get angry at them, you've got to remember, hey, this is my brother. This is my friend. We love each other. I'm not going to be mad at them. Take care of it while it's small. Don't let it grow bigger. But young adults and parents, we aren't exempt ourselves, are we? How often do you find yourself thinking and speaking poorly about what someone else has said or done? Just coming out your mouth. Right? Can't believe so-and-so did such-and-such. Or did you see so-and-so? Did you see what they did? Are we given to being scornful? Is that coming out our mouths? And who's hearing it? Whose ears is it falling on? Is it falling on the ears of those children I just talked to? So in the bigger picture here, Christ is calling for a righteousness of the heart and not just outward conformity to a man-made code. That is the righteousness we as Christians need to develop. And we need to train and discipline ourselves to do that. Adults, we need to lead ourselves in this manner first, right? When we have, when we've done something wrong, when we have these attitudes, right, we need to get to the root of them, not just clean ourselves up on the outside. And we have to help our children do the same. How many times, how do we train them and discipline them in a way that affects only outward behavior? As we focus on that. Stop doing that. Don't, don't, stop, stop, don't do that. You're embarrassing me. What's your mother going to think if she sees you doing that? Don't do that. Stop. If that's the content of our discipline, what are we disciplining? What are we teaching? Outward performance. Who does that put us in the camp of? Right? It's here in the scripture. How do we discipline? How do we parent? Do we do the harder work of getting to the hard attitude? Do we sit down and say, let's talk about this. What were you thinking before you did that? What was in your heart? What were you thinking? Was that the right thing to do? Was, it, was that right? Was that pleasing to the Lord? Was that really you know, the right thing to do? What would have been the right thing to do? Right? If you had to do it all over again, what would be the right thing to do that would please the Lord? Let's pray to him about that. Folks, we've got to go to our heart. Parents, we need to go to the hearts of our children. Because that's where Christ and his righteousness will come from. John Stott, in his Bible study on Christ, I think summarizes these couple verses we've just looked at very well. He says, Christian righteousness is greater than pharisaical righteousness because it's a righteousness of the heart. A righteousness not of words and deeds, but of thoughts and of motives. And it is in this sense that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. He looks beyond the superficial understanding of the law 
to its radical demand for heart righteousness. Christ does fulfill the law, and he does by pointing to heart righteousness. And we can only have that heart righteousness with the indwelling Holy Spirit writing the law upon our hearts. As the psalmist said in Psalm 40, verses 7 and 8, actually going back to verse 6, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears hast thou opened. Burnt offerings, sin offerings you have not required. Then I said, Lo, I come. In the volume of the books it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is written within my heart. Heart righteousness comes from God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. Faithful is he who has called us. He will also do it. So with that firmly rooted, now working from a heart that's dedicated to righteousness... Now Christ is going to talk about how we are to act. Okay, do you see how he taught here? He taught first, this is where your heart needs to be. Now, this is how I want you to act. Okay, so we can't blow through verses 21 and 22 and go right to verse 23 and try to live our life there. But now he does give us two examples of how to live out the type of righteousness that he's talking about. The type of righteousness that should flow out of a heart with the law written upon it. Verses 23 through 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar, go your way, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Very practical, pretty straightforward advice, right? Probably not going to have to dig too deep in the passage here to pull out what he's talking about. It's a matter of priorities, He's speaking of a matter of priorities here. Reconciliation to a brother is more important than being at the altar of God. Reconciliation with another is more important than being at the altar of, the, at the altar of God. He desires obedience over sacrifice. Did you hear that in Psalm 40, verse 6? We've got a tremendous example in Scripture. Please turn with me. 1 Samuel, chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15. Okay? Let's go there and see what the word says about this idea of obedience versus sacrifice. What we have here is an account of Saul's incomplete obedience. At least that's the heading my Bible puts under chapter 15, and that's a pretty accurate representation of what happens here. Okay, Saul goes out to battle. He's been instructed by Samuel, the Lord speaking through Samuel, that these people he's going to battle, the Amalekites... He's to utterly wipe out. He's to destroy everything. Okay? They were an evil people. They were people who stood against the people of God and God's justice is going to be executed through his people, Israel, upon them. Okay? This is one of those Old Testament moments where we see the justice of God. And he says, their evil is so full that all their goods, all their cattle, everything, have none of it. Have none of it come along with you. Right? He says in verse 3, Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both the man and the woman, infant and suckling, ox and sheep, cattle and ass. What happens in verse 9? They have the victory, and at the end, verse 9, Saul and the people spared Agag, the best of the sheep, 
and the oxen, and of the fatlings, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. But everything that was vile and refuse, they destroyed utterly. They kind of made a judgment call. Right? They decided, no, that looks good, that doesn't look good. Started to separate it out and operate outside the command that they had from God. So Samuel comes on the scene, verse 13. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Samuel said, What means this, the bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They've been brought from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord thy God. And the rest we have utterly destroyed. So what's happened here? He saved some things for sacrifice, but he has not obeyed. He saved things for sacrifice, but he has not obeyed. So what does the Lord say? Verse 20. Saul said to Samuel again, Yet I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone the way which the Lord has sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people, a little blame shifting, took the spoil, sheep and oxen, and chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice them unto the Lord God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord his great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of the lambs. So back to Matthew 5. We've been called to reconcile with a brother, and that's how we obey. So that's more important than a sacrifice at the altar before the Lord. And we obey this, again, I want to remind you, from the heart. Right? This isn't an outward performance. This is from the heart. Romans 6, 17. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. One commentator said, With so great a sin and penalty for abusing a brother, given the seriousness of this to God, we need to move quickly and decisively to restore by confessing fault, by humbling ourselves, by asking pardon, by making restitution. Confessing our fault, humbling ourselves, asking pardon, and making restitution. So to seek reconciliation, we need to come face-to-face with a big roadblock. Pride. P-R-I-D-E. There is no indication here that this brother needs to be willing or asking for reconciliation on our part. We are responsible for our actions and for our attitudes in this area. There's no qualifier here. We need to confess and repent of our angry thoughts towards another immediately. And here's the steps. Look at the rude attitude of anger that's springing in your heart. Confess that sin to God. Replace it with scripture. You could even read back over the scriptures we have here this morning. Right? To replace that wrong thinking with right thinking. And then go to that brother and humbly seek reconciliation. So in what way are we being offensive to others? Think about your own self. In what way 
do you find you can be offensive? We've all done it. We probably all know to a certain extent how we most likely would do it. Is it our words? Is it our actions? Is it a rotten attitude? And will you this morning consider confessing, repenting of, and forsaking those actions? Who do you need to seek reconciliation with? And what roadblock is stopping you? What's standing in your way? Christ will help you overcome it. Rely on him. The second application of the teaching of heartfelt righteousness comes in verses 25 and 26 in the resolution of conflicts. Agree with thine adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge. The judge deliver thee to the officer, and you'll be cast into prison. Truly I say unto you, you shall by no means come out thence till thou have paid the uttermost farthing. Clear teaching here as well. We need to resolve issues quickly and biblically. We're told first to agree with an adversary. I think it would be instructive to look at what that word agree entails. Right? What's the Lord talking about? If we need to agree, what does it look like? Agree, from the root word, means to be well-minded or well-disposed. Right? We're to be well-minded, well-disposed. I think in the reading this morning it said friendly. Right? And kind of an absence of, of conflict. But well-minded or well-disposed. Notice it does not say that to be at peace we have to be same-minded. Right? We don't have to be 100% in agreement with somebody about something right? to be in the sense that God's talking about here to be in agreement, to be agreed with them in the biblical sense here. We need to be able to hold that difference with peace and charity. If that difference is held with peace and charity, no anger, no ill will, then we, in essence, fulfill what God's asking us to do to agree with this person. The second thing that caught my eye as I was looking at that is the word adversary. That's a fairly strong word. Right? I don't think anybody really wants an adversary. So you ask, right, go for God, why do I have an adversary? Where could this have come from? In what ways have I been offensive and hurtful and made an adversary? Often it's selfishness, right? Wanting our own rights, our own way at the cost of theirs. That's the roadblock here. Right? So previously in reconciliation, pride was standing in our way. Now as we think about this agreement and keeping from having an adversary itself and selfishness, wanting to be right, wanting to be recognized, wanting to be heard, desiring vindication that gets in our way. And Christ counsels here, this delay is very costly. Right? He goes on to say, what happens? Right? If you don't agree quickly, what could happen? Your adversary might deliver you to the judge, the judge to the officer, and you'll be cast into prison. And you shall by no means come out thence till you have paid the uttermost farthing. I don't know if you've been involved in a court proceeding. Praise the Lord, I have not. But my understanding is going to court is costly. It's very time-consuming. And there's a very unexpected element to it. It doesn't always turn out the way we think it might or in a way that we would believe is just. 
There's a lot that can happen when one goes to court. And so the wise counsel here is avoid that at all costs, right? Don't allow things to progress to the point where you and the adversary are so far apart that the only way to solve it is to take it to court, right? Take care of it quickly and before then. Humility must reign over selfish pride. So again, putting feet to this. When you see or are convicted that your words or actions have been offensive or hurtful to another, do not let them grow into bitterness. Right? Humbly seek agreement. Be well-minded before the issue grows out of control and you have an adversary that opposes you. Because really that's what's at stake here is bitterness. Right? A root of bitterness. Right? Turn with me to Hebrews 12, 14 through 15. Let's see the high cost of not agreeing with an adversary quickly. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Okay, follow peace with all men, right? Try to come to this agreement, to this well-minded, well-disposed point. Follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently... Lest any man fall of the grace, fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. There is a high cost to allowing a conflict to go unresolved. A root of bitterness starts, and it grows. And not only are you defiled, but many are defiled by your root of bitterness. So what issue might be out there that remains unresolved for you right now? Are you growing bitter over it? Is your brother growing bitter over it? Is the cost growing day by day, gaining interest? Is the debt piling up? So what's keeping you from agreeing with that adversary? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. <laughs> this likely distressed the audience that Christ spoke it to greatly. Right? Thinking about the frame of mind they were coming from. But what about us? I hope for the believer that this statement stirs a great praise in our hearts. Because to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, we need to move from an outward conformance of man-made rules to an inward attitude that motivates heartfelt, loving, righteous actions. Right? Christ teaches us God's priority of the heart attitude for righteousness in human relationships. When dealing with other people, we need to cease harboring anger in our hearts. We need to prioritize reconciliation. And we need to immediately resolve the conflicts that we know of. You know, as Ralph said last week, Christ raises the bar beyond the outward keeping of rules here. The bar is much higher. They were thinking, as long as I don't physically kill somebody, I'm all right. The bar has just gone way up. But we don't need to be discouraged. Because praise God, he has equipped us through Christ to clear the bar. The bar is not too high for Christ. And as a believer, Christ is in us. The bar is not too high for us either when we walk humbly with him in obedience. To be delivered from the sin of anger, 
murder in the heart, the first step is confessing the sin to God. Then yield to the work of the Holy Spirit and walk in obedience. This is the miracle by which a Christian is enabled to fulfill the righteousness of God's law. Romans 8.24. Maybe a good verse to meditate on this week. 8.24. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Christ issues the challenge that we heard for a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees to draw his Jewish listeners in the body here at Hope in Christ Church to him and his sacrifice as our only path to righteousness. That's what he's teaching here. That's what he's leading us to. A complete and total dependence on him for any and all righteousness. So there's an important question I want to ask before we close. As you sit here this morning, do you know that you have the law of God written on your heart by the Holy Spirit? This comes only with accepting the gospel of Jesus Christ for your salvation. Realizing that your sins carry the death penalty. And no matter how much you clean up the outside and dress it up and make it look good and try to do all those things that look good, if the heart attitude is wrong, you've sinned. And the penalty of sin is death. Your sins carry the death penalty. But there is one acceptable sacrifice. Do you trust fully in that acceptable sacrifice of Jesus Christ is sufficient for your sin and your only source of righteousness? If you have a doubt on that this morning, please talk to someone. Talk to your parent. Talk to a brother or sister. Talk to one of the elders. Don't leave that matter unsettled and a question mark in your mind. Please join me in the closing prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, as believers here, we confess to you that we have no righteousness of our own. Father, our only hope for righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, that you wrap believers in like a robe and cover us. Father, as your word says in Romans 7.26, we thank you that we've been delivered from the law having died to what we were held by, so that we should serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Father, I thank you for the newness, the new way of the, old co- of the, of the new covenant that speaks of our inward desires versus outward performances. Father, thank you that you do. You are God who delights Injustice and what's right and what's true. And you are a God who cares about what is moral. But Father, I thank you that your moral precepts are written on our hearts, that the Spirit inclines our hearts and gives us the desire to obey. Father, I thank you that you enable us to obey the law's commandments through your word and through the Spirit. Father, I thank you for the delight of following you that you've removed our hostility and by writing the law in our hearts, we can now delight, like the psalmist speaks of, we can delight in God's law. Father, we thank you 
that there's no fear. And that fear can be replaced with gratitude. That the Spirit, by showing us God's grace, produces a response of love and gratitude. Father, may we obey you out of gratitude for the favor that you've already given us. And Father, I thank you that our outward performance is not the standard. I thank you that we can rely on you, the sacrifice of Christ, and that the Spirit bears witness that we're accepted by God through Christ's merit, and that by relying solely on his perfect righteousness, we are accepted, and thereby we can enter into the kingdom of heaven. Father, help us to walk in the newness of the Spirit that you give us. In Jesus' name, amen.